Welcome to the Street Smart Wisdom Podcast from Wisdom Feed. I'm Steve Stein. In this series, we talk to best-selling authors and thought leaders doing great work in the world of mindfulness, wellness, and creativity. Our mission is to bring ancient ideas down to street level and bring you takeaways that you can apply to everyday life. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterListen.com. At BetterListen, we have hundreds of audios, courses, and programs available to stream and download. As a listener to the Street Smart Wisdom podcast, you are eligible for a free audiobook download. Just visit BetterListen.com forward slash free today. On this show, our guest is best-selling author John Kabat-Zinn. In this Street Smart Conversation, we talk about a number of things, including what it means to be mindful in the digital age. We also discuss how the soccer team that was trapped in the cave in Thailand used meditation to survive. Welcome to another session of Street Smart Wisdom, and we're here with John Kabat-Zinn today uh, talking about street smart mindfulness or mindfulness uh, applications in the real world. And one of the things I was talking about with John a while ago that uh, I thought was kind of phenomenal was what happened with the soccer team that was stuck in the cave. Uh, And uh, it's an image that is still with me that when, you know, it was very unfortunate, one of the Navy SEALs died, but the image that supersedes that for me is when the Navy SEALs came out of the water, they saw the whole soccer team mind, uh, meditating, you know, because I had visions. I know I have the 13-year-old, 15-year-old, you put him in a room, a dark room with no food, you easy to bounce off the walls, but they were meditating. And uh, that was a kind of a practical application of how it you know, can help in the world. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, this, this happened in Thailand. Thailand is a Buddhist country. So people grow up and they see all these temples and they see monastics. They see women and men, nuns and monks who devote their life to living that kind of contemplative life. And so it's part of the culture in a way that it's simply not in the West. Uh, And so apparently this teacher, I don't know all the details, but this uh, teacher, you know, here they are stuck in a cave, and I think it was like 11 miles in, you know, uh, under a mountain. And then they got so flooded by torrential rains that there was no way out. And it would have been multiple, you know, underwater. I mean, you need to be a a Navy SEAL to get in there. And so no idea that they would ever be found or that they would survive because they may have had a few snacks, but they didn't, they weren't, they were going for the afternoon. And this teacher apparently, because of his own exposure to meditation, realized that 
it was, it, we'd better actually drop into uh, calming the mind and stilling the mind. Because if we start thinking about, we're going to all die here, we're all going to, you know, starve here. And in the dark, I mean, you know, kids are afraid of the dark anyway. I mean, that's a prescription for losing your mind. And here's an example of a whole group of kids, so these soccer kids, you know, it was like pre-adolescents, as I understand it, and one teacher, and rather than lose their minds, what they actually did was use their minds to cultivate equanimity in the face of the mind saying, like, it's all over, I'm a dead duck. And extending that out for days, I don't know how long it took for them to actually get to these you know, kids get to that particular region of the cave um, and rescuing them. And then, yes, you're right. Uh, apparently, one Navy SEAL, Thai Navy SEAL, died in, you know, the attempt. Um, and what these kids did when they got it out with their teacher was they actually honored that Navy SEAL who died by ordaining as monks in a monastery themselves for I don't know how long, but as an example of their own gratitude to this person who lost their, his life because of the happenstance or whatever. There was also one other thing in the news that really touched me, and that was uh, a woman nearby where the cave was, uh, who because they had to pump out this 11 miles of tunnels and stuff like that, they pumped it into her fields and uh -huh. ruined her crops, ruined her crops. And this is a kind of relatively old woman uh, whose livelihood depended on selling those crops. And she said, crops are replaceable, children aren't. And I just thought, wow, there are lessons there that probably all of us could learn and this is really uh, mindfulness and heartfulness uh, expressing itself in a culture that kind of, where that's part of the soil, it's part of the air, you know, they, they breathe it. They don't even think about it as, you know, special. It's just like, yeah, of course, it's important to exercise the muscle of kindness, exercise the muscle of compassion, exercise the muscle of mindfulness when the proverbial stuff is most hitting the proverbial fan. Right, and I think uh, he, the soccer coach, uh, I believe I have the story right, his parents uh, died when he was young and was raised or lived for a year or two in the monastery, which is, oh. where, he, which is where he learned the whole practice of meditation. Yeah. So that's how he was steeped in it and was able to, uh, you know, to work with, with the kids. Um, and just to say um, that when we use the word meditation uh, and then we talk about mindfulness, mindfulness in that tradition in particular in Southeast Asia, uh, mindfulness was always spoken of in the Buddha's time as the heart of Buddhist meditation. And the Buddha himself was very clear in saying that calling it the direct path for liberation from suffering, from Stress, pain, and lamentation is the way you put it. The direct path. Well, yes. It. Uh, anyway, I'm glad to get uh, to talk about that with you because yeah, that was 
uh, even for my kids. Now, now we'll segue into my kids. I don't know if it was seven weeks ago or maybe longer, but uh, my kids have been away uh, in camp. We've, we've never done this before. Somehow we made it work. And for seven weeks, they had no digital anything, no phones, no, uh, you know, Fortnite. That's the new thing now, Fortnite. There's a whole, uh, it's amazing. So they'll be back tomorrow. So I'll get some firsthand experience. And one of the things as a, as a parent, my wife and I are trying to sort out is, well, a social media contract with them. My wife like researches these things. Have you ever heard of that? Like to, to be appropriate with use of social media. And it's, it's a hard thing because my wife likes, likes her Facebook. I'm obviously on digital all the time. So it's hard to tell your kids to do one thing if you're not kind of living Absolutely. it yourself. Absolutely. And even if you're not doing it, they just think, well, you're from the stone age. So, you know, why would you have any authority with regard to stuff you can't possibly understand? And there's a certain way in which the kids' brains are different because they're on digital media so much and they process information in particular kinds of ways that, you know, people who were born in the, into the analog world, uh, you know, just don't have that kind of facility or that kind of interest even in connecting in those kinds of ways. So it, it is definitely a gigantic challenge for parents uh, to um, find some kind of sensible way of uh, putting an analog foundation under, uh, you know, the children's uh, lives and limiting to some degree the addictive qualities of those uh, social networks. And, uh, and actually not just addictive uh, qualities, but also there's a lot of stuff that goes on, on in those networks, which is, you know, involves bullying, involves disregarding others, involves, you know, racism, hatred, all sorts of things. And the parents, for the most part, aren't even equipped to monitor that kind of stuff, nor are the school systems. So it's a big deal. Right. So, uh, so that's something we're, to a certain extent, wrestling with. I think I mentioned before that uh, when it's come to a head, my wife has actually locked up all the, uh, yeah. all the electronics in a briefcase. Um, so we're, we're looking to find balance. And now there's this new thing. Are, are you familiar with Fortnite at all? No, you mentioned it, but I don't know what it is. So it's, it's, it's growing exponentially. Is it popular with the 14-year-olds or? 10, 11 to 15, 16. Uh-huh. And, and uh, well, as I said, they've been gone for seven weeks and they haven't touched it since then. So it's, what question That's remarkable, I, Steve. I mean, that's absolutely remarkable. I'd love to be kind of fly on the wall in your house tomorrow. <laughs> no, I know. So. I'm not even sure what what should I ask them or you know I'm not going to do a neuro scan to see if it changed but so I you know I asked my I spoke to him briefly my 15 year old before we got on here because he got home today they'll be home they, they left camp today they'll be here tomorrow and he said the fact that no one else in the camp had that option you didn't feel like you were missing out right right and then you're forced to relate to people. 
Well, but that's what real social networking is, being forced to relate to people that you're in relationship with. And if you're in the same camp, then yeah, you're all in it together. It's very cool. Uh, it must be great to, you know, to have a camp. I mean, it's very good of the camp, you know, to just, you know, put up a, you know, a sort of fence that says no electronic devices while you're here. Right, and I think they used to have, you can have like iPods for music, but now they even, they don't even have that anymore. Um, so. Well, now nobody has an iPod, you know, I guess, uh, that it's all on the one device. And I, you know, I, I was just writing something this morning and it's like, everybody has what, you know, I was describing as, uh, a supercomputer in our pocket or, uh, you know, sort of a uh, bag. Uh, it's really a supercomputer. And so it's potential and it's a network supercomputer. It's not just like a calculating machine, a fancy, you know, calculating machine. It's, it's, it's kind of completely interconnected with all the other supercomputers. So that's what the internet is. And, you know, this is like a new territory for the human species. So, and there's a lot of people working on doing great work with managing technology Kirsten, and kids. Tristan Harris in particular. Remember? Tristan Harris. Oh, Tristan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I wrote a, but mentioned him in that article. I know. That's what I wanted to mention. No, I thought you said Kristen. I know a different Kristen, but no. Tristan, yeah, he's... Uh, you know, even when I met him a few years ago, you could tell he was so thoughtful and deliberate. And now he's, uh, I think he's really caught, caught on to something. Uh, yeah, and these ethical issues that he's pointing out, they are really serious. So we're talking about like the future of the human species. Um, you know, we are analog beings, but we are, you know, have this, you met Tony Fadell who, you know, headed up the, uh, Apple iPhone team. And, you know, they're very clear that they designed it when they were young kids to be maximally addictive and maximally seductive. And then you've got all these like infinite number of apps. So it's a kind of universal touring machine right in your pocket with any kind of app conceivable practically now, you know, right there. And so it makes it really challenging to be in touch with, say, what's going on in the natural world, or what's going on in camp when you're not allowed to use any of that stuff. But as you say, if all the kids are in the same boat, then all of a sudden they have a chance to actually experience their childhood. And, and they don't, absolutely. I and mean, when we talk about it being native New Yorkers who are in stickball, punchball, Yep. You know, there was, there was much, no, well, much when less we growing, I mean, yeah, I was in the streets every day in Washington Heights and playing, you know, whatever was the season to play in those days. And, you know, phones were something that, you know, you had one in your home. <laughs> Our friends at Better Listen are offering a special discount to listeners of the show. 20% off all programs at betterlisten.com. Just use 
discount code PODCAST20 when checking out. Enjoy. My wife's a big Facebook person. And uh, so there was this one video that she shared um, where they had, they put like three 16-year-olds with an old rotary phone. And they told them to make a call. <laughs> and one picked it up. It's not working. They threw it down. And then the other was dialing the number but couldn't figure out you had to pick up the phone to get a dial tone. And it's just so foreign. That is funny. And um, so I heard this other term, uh, you know, f- the term FOMO, fear of missing out. And, you know, oh, yeah, I've heard that too. Right. And that's, I think, one thing that my son didn't have for seven weeks because he wasn't missing out because no one else was missing out. But then I heard this other term called the joy of missing out, like the joy of putting your devices away. So, you know, I think that's, uh, and now they're trying to program that into iPhones where there's a wellness, you know, Androids, they all have a setting, an app to turn off all the other apps. (laughs) So it's like less distractions. Wonderful. uh, Well, you know, I mean, these kinds of things are not going to go away. I mean, humanity has kind of made this leap into, you know, this, and it's going in the direction of AI, of artificial intelligence and so forth. So, uh, you know, this is another reason why mindfulness is so important. And what I like to say is before we, you know, move away from our humanity into this kind of human digital interface, which pretty soon could be, implants or upgrades, memory upgrades to your brain or whatever it is, um, maybe we should discover what the full capacity of this human organism that we are privileged to have is. And the way you do that is by diving deep into your own present moment experience and learning how to be at home in your own skin and not having to have other people think you're great or find out how many people liked your post or you know, responded to your Instagram post, whatever it is, uh, but that you're just already okay, already whole, and already in touch with the wonder and the beauty of the analog world, you know, not a simulated sunset, not a simulated forest, but a real sunset, a real forest, the real water that you actually know how to navigate and swim in or sail on or whatever, and let the world come to you and speak to you. And then, yeah, of course you need to connect through the phones because, and texting and everything else. But when you bring mindfulness to how addicted you are to, or every impulse you have to check your email or to check texts or texts, text or whatever, uh, you know, that mindfulness actually can regulate and say checking 200 times a day, maybe you'll check 10 or 20 times a day, and you'll catch the impulse and say, do I, what is, the, what is the source of this impulse? Do I really need to hear from anybody else to be complete right now in this moment? The answer is almost invariably no. But if you're addicted, if you're getting those, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, neurotransmitter, uh, you know, sort of tweaks, and you become addicted to them, then yeah, you got to continually check your Facebook 
you know, and check your Twitter feed or whatever it is. Because otherwise you don't know what other people are thinking about you that maybe you won't know what you're thinking about you. So to actually befriend yourself without the devices is incredibly important. Hmm. That makes sense to you? It, 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 <clears throat> it, it, it does make sense. And it, it's, you know, as long as you're alive, you kind of have to monitor your mindfulness or, or lack of mindfulness. And, you know, I'm not a master meditator, but I meditate pretty much every morning. You know, I, I get a good, you know, little chunk of time in. And the days that I don't, I feel that, you know, I feel, uh, you know, I feel it. You can't, you can't get your kids to uh, do it. You know, I mean, you have to be very careful uh, that in some sense, it's a big challenge of parenting is how you work that analog digital divide. It sounds like you're doing, you know, a very imaginative job of it, even in what camps you select, you know. No, uh, and, you know, and it's an ongoing challenge because this Fortnite thing, I'll, I'll say it again, I'll mention it again because I've seen games come and go Nintendo, my kids are all digital natives, but this Fortnite thing is they could be playing this game with their friend around the corner, their friend from school, their friend in Toronto, their friend in Israel together at the same time. So that well, we used to go to the park to hang out Right, all together. Now they're all around the world. You know, and it's a real-time experience. So that on one level, it's a real-time connection. But on another level, it's so, like, disembodied. Is that the right word? Or it's so... Yeah, that is the right word. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so that's... Uh, so we're just wondering if we want to finish up this segment... Uh, any thoughts, or I always love when you say something from Thoreau, or uh, there's nothing, anything from the book to, uh, to read, or, or quote, or two-minute meditation, whatever you're comfortable with. We can edit this whole thing out, too, uh, but. Yeah, well, l let me just reflect on that for a second. Um, I think that more and more uh, teachers are bringing mindfulness into their classrooms because the kids are so distracted and so addicted already to their technologies and actually taking the technology away from them, not just at camp, but say not allowing it you know, in the classroom or whatever, or having it have to be shut off. Uh, but more and more teachers are you know, bringing mindfulness training into the classroom because they need it because they're so stressed out, but the kids need it even more. Uh, and rather than yelling at kids to pay attention, teaching them how to actually pay attention and to be at home with yourself as you are without having to fill your moments with anything else, including checking you know, your social networks and stuff like that. There's a profound sense of well-being that comes with that, a profound sense of like, I'm okay in this moment, I don't need anything else to fill me up or anybody else to say I'm great or pump up my ego in order to be okay. And when you learn that young, no matter how much digital technology 
arises, you're not going to, you're going to be immune to it in a particular way because you'll have this meta-awareness, this awareness of your own impulse to self-distract, and you'll have strategies for how to actually navigate that. If you're not exposed to that kind of thing, then basically you're becoming a slave to your own impulses while all these you know, multi-billion dollar corporations are trying to figure out how to get your eyeballs or more of your attention units onto their page on the web or whatever else it happens to be using their software or their device or, or, or whatever. And this is the challenge of our time. And I don't think anybody has the answer, but I think certainly you'd mentioned Tristan Harris and there are many people who are some of the founders of these companies uh, in Silicon Valley, who really care about their own children and the, the, the challenges of their own precocious technologies. And uh, so I'm sort of optimistic that the human species being as clever as we are, maybe we will ultimately uh, come to the kind of wisdom that uh, mindfulness is pointing to in a way that we'll be able to live with uh, our amazing technologies without being coming slaves to those technologies. And I'll just say in terms of the word slave, because the word mindfulness, when I learned you know, how to write it in Chinese characters, the word for mindfulness in Chinese is, the, is interestingly the, the character for presence or now over the character for heart. It actually shows four four wow. chambers. So the character for presence over the character for heart. And then somebody said to me, do you want to know what the, uh, the Chinese character for anger is? And I said, sure. And it turns out that the character for anger in Chinese is the character for slave over the character for heart. You're a slave to your own impulses. Wow. When you are caught in anger. So we need to really reflect on how much we are becoming enslaved by our technological uh, precocity and guard against it in whatever ways we can to use the technology effectively, but not surrender um, some degree of our you know, analog life and our you know, emotional intelligence to always you know, creating stories on the internet that aren't true anyway. You know? because we want people to like us, and maybe we don't think we're even likable, why not actually befriend ourselves in a way and find out if you're human, if you're breathing, you're likable. To a first approximation, you are likable, and the more you actually attend to what's deepest and best in yourself, the more likable you're gonna be, and uh, you don't need to worry so much about it. You've been listening to Street Smart Wisdom, the podcast from Wisdom Feed. You can follow Wisdom Feed on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. If you haven't, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. We appreciate your feedback. Join us next week for another Street Smart Conversation. Thank you for listening.